Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon and then as a podcast, you're with MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers, top commentators. Today's program sponsored by Peregrine Capital, South Africa's first fund to reach more than 100 times your investment since inception. Friday, the 27th of October, World Cup final weekend. Coming up, more on Transnet's 100 billion rand ask from Treasury. The new egg import strategy will hit consumers hard. Will the Imbonambi racial slur incident impact the Springbok mindset ahead of tomorrow's final and the danger of having the match on payday? Also, we ask, can the South African Air Force be saved? South Africa is embarking on a SADC egg import drive as the avian flu crisis continues to batter the local industry. Abungili Balarani is the chief executive officer of the South African Poultry Association. He's with me now. So you want to import more eggs. It indicates, I guess, how badly the flu has impacted the industry. Yes. So what normally happens, you'll find out you've got farmers, uh, South African farmers are also farming over the border. Currently, there's been a high push from some of the traders. We've got a 40-day sort of uh, shelf life in South Africa, or a 40-day rule uh, if you import eggs, let's say, from Brazil. So it's difficult at the moment to import from Brazil and Argentina. So most of the traders have been pushing the 40 days you know, to be relaxed. So we are saying as an industry, why do you want to relax the regulations to favor the traders, rather open the cross-borders, you know, countries like Angola, Namibia, Zimbabwe, Swaziland is already opened. Those countries are AI-free and they've got stocks, you know, as much as it's not bulk stocks, but at least those stocks can assist, you know, in the short term. And what sort of response have you had to that and is this likely to happen? Yeah, that is the position from the, the association. So how long before we can start importing eggs? We have started with uh, some of the imports of uh, liquid uh, and powder eggs and then also the, the fertile eggs. Now, for the fresh table eggs, um, we're making that call to, say, open some of the other countries so that we can get those stocks also in into South Africa. There are some permits that have been already approved around, I think, about 24 of those permits by the minister for table eggs. So those are um, perhaps uh, imports that may come from the likes of uh, Swaziland mm. at the moment because it's the one that is opened. To what extent will this decision impact or help the shortage of table eggs in South Africa? Will it go a long way? It's for a short term. Uh, if you look at what we have lost at the moment, we've lost about, uh, let's say, 30% of the industry. It's down due to H5 and H7. So we said with the remaining 70% of production that we have, we'll rather channel all those eggs to, to the shelves or to the retailers or to the consumers and then import the liquid and powder, which we use for the industrial purposes. And by doing so, at least in the short term, we will be fine. But to also 
include some of the imports coming from the cross-border countries to add on uh, on the 70% that we have. It will really take us a long way while we're still rebuilding the lost production. Would there be any safety or health concerns over the importation of table eggs? The concern uh, is around uh, the push for the 40-day rule. If we maintain the current regulations as they are and everyone abide to the regulations as they are currently, we shouldn't have much of the concerns because you've got 40 days from the day of lay to get that egg into South Africa and for it to be sold and consumed in South Africa within 40 days. So for someone who's just in, in Zimbabwe or Angola, it is quite easy for them to transport eggs to South Africa as compared from bringing eggs that will be refrigerated at temperatures of 1 to 4 degrees coming down, let's say, through the sea from, let's say, Brazil or Argentina. Those eggs coming from Brazil and Argentina will take longer. And those are the eggs we are worried about in terms of quality and other issues because in 2017, when we had the same situation of avian influenza, we imported eggs from Brazil, and unfortunately, those eggs were of poor quality. Uh, they didn't match the local standards. Hence, the 40 days became now a rule within the regulations. Right. If we're going to start importing eggs uh, from SADC countries, even on a short-term basis, inevitably, table eggs are going to become more expensive, though. Uh, unfortunately, the normal forces of supply and demand will actually dictate the price. It definitely, there will be some bit of uh, pressure on the consumers uh, while we are still rebuilding the flocks. If I look at the estimate, we're looking at it around at least more than uh, or close to 17 months for us to be back to normal. And are you able at this point to give us a sense as well as to what kind of broader support package you're looking for from the government? We heard yesterday the deputy president saying that some sort of measures are going to be announced. What are you hoping for? The announcement that I also listened this morning uh, from Deputy Minister, I think it follows the discussions we had with the uh, Portfolio Committee of Agriculture last week uh, where we presented the situation from the industry. If you look at the number of the chickens that we've lost on the layer side, you're looking at anything around the two to three billion rents uh, to recover that production. Uh, we welcome the announcement from the Deputy Minister of the 3.6 billion for the entire industry. We are hoping that uh, once the Minister of Agriculture and the DG has put the plan of how that uh, funding mechanism will be accessed, uh, we are looking forward to that. But over and above the, the financial assistance that we are receiving from government, already there are good talks in terms of uh, uh, vaccinating against both the H5 and H7. The government team of vets and the supper team of vets are quite working very well to come up with that solution. Abungili Balarani is the Chief Executive Officer of the South African Poultry Association. Thank you for talking to me. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. We heard overnight about the much-vaunted Transnet turnaround plan that it hopes will return it to profitability by 2025. It requires funding of more than 100 billion rand from National Treasury. MoneyWeb's deputy editor, Seren Naidu, is covering that story for us. And firstly, can you elaborate on the specifics? It seems quite an extensive plan, Chairperson and the acting CEOs seemed quite confident in achieving it, but the targets are still well below some of the performance figures from five and even 10 years ago. So like coal, for example, it's about maybe 12 years ago that we last sent as much coal through the Richards Bay port. So there are some specifics around 
targeting 154 million tons through the ports. And the long-term target is 170, but that's still below what the likes of the Durban and other ports Mm. have done in previous years. Seren, I guess the big question is how feasible is it going to be for Transnet to secure the financial support? And we're talking a lot of money here, given the current strain on South Africa's public finances. That's the big issue, isn't it? It is. We'll have to wait and see. I personally don't think there'll be a major announcement in the midterm budget. You think of ESCOM, it took uh, a few years before government eventually decided on the bailout of ESCOM. And I think they first started talking three years ago about the possibility of a bailout. So there are some figures bandied about. I don't think uh, $100 billion is feasible because Transnet's current debt is around $130 billion. You might find they drip feed it over various budgets over a number of years, but obviously Transnet is trying to motivate for as much equity support as possible because they cite the government being the shareholder. And obviously, if it gets that equity support, it can uh, focus on operations. And it's not purely about profitability. It's also about investment. And investment is, they have a 50 billion rand maintenance deficit at the moment and that's minimum maintenance Mm. so there's a lot of work ahead well and part of that work i guess whatever the money is that is forwarded is going to be transparent and accountable management of those funds something that has challenged transnet in the past Definitely. The bailout, you can't really call it a bailout. The funding that it received in the prior budget was more to deal with the KZN floods and and that they hadn't planned for. So it it wasn't really a bailout. But there would be some rigorous requirements in terms of whether if the Treasury decides to support them, how it's spent and um, better checks and balances. The Transnet current leadership have maintained that even though they're acting executives, they are presenting the plan. So they've said that if they're still in there, they will be accountable for this plan. But we'll have to wait and see who the new CEO is. They ought to announce that by April next year at the latest, I believe. But whichever way you look at it, time is of the essence here and that the government, I guess, has no choice but to step in given the importance of Transnet to the country's economy. Definitely. Various commentators have said that it's a given, but um, I agree with them that it won't be a massive amount or it will still be in the billions, but you wouldn't expect government to give 50 billion even in this upcoming budget to Transnet. If it does, I would be surprised, especially within context of where South Africa finds itself uh, fiscally and Minister of Finance uh, already warning departments uh, about budget cuts in wake of the public sector wage bill costing 30 to 40 billion rand more. Seren, I also see in the plan that Transnet is looking to partner with the private sector by auctioning rail slots. This is not the first time, though, if I'm not mistaken, that this has been raised. And previously, uh, there wasn't a huge amount of interest. That's been on the table for a while. There was a story a week or so ago where one of the successful partners or or that were targeting it, uh, you know, they've backtracked on on one of those um, tenders, as it were. But they seem pretty committed and convinced that's the only way to get rail working because Transnet doesn't have the balance sheet to finance it. And there's a lot of rail infrastructure that might need a little bit of 
private sector innovation to make it work because Transnet will still be prioritizing the ports and certain key areas. And, you know, one thing can prevent, uh, you know, it might seem minor, but it could cause a big hassle for Transnet. So there has been a, quite a bit of private sector interest. Uh, I know we've covered it a little bit uh, on MoneyWeb where the various commentators have said, I suppose it's the incentives and how easy it is for that PPP to work. And that's the big question because it's not just rail, it's also handling the terminals at the ports, for example. They announced that deal with a Philippines-based company uh, earlier this year, but that's not a done deal. There's a lot that still needs to happen there, and uh, I'm sure the unions are going to oppose it because they see it as a a threat to jobs. And just finally, uh, it's going to be difficult, I imagine, to decide how to prioritize any funding that is given. So we have problems with rail and rolling stock. The ports are in a serious state of disarray in some respects. A lot of equipment is either poorly maintained or is simply dilapidated. So it's a question of getting priorities right as well once that funding is agreed to. Yes, I, I think a lot of discussion is underway with the private sector and government through the various bodies. Similar to ESCOM and NEOCOM, they have a task team between government and the private sector and Transnet with regards to the logistics challenges. So there is a lot of input from the likes of the Mining Council, the coal players. You would have seen or heard last week where uh, Transnet asked the coal players for help. But uh, I suppose they need to judge it on merit in terms of the dividends uh, and which is the most cost effective and you you see a lot of cold companies delivering coal through mozambique uh, you might have seen some mm. of the videos of border posts with five kilometer long truck lines so even this plan that's been presented is still yet to be seen if it's approved by the DPE and uh, gets uh, Ramaphosa's stamp of approval as well. Yeah, I guess whichever way you look at it, though, there is a growing sense of uh, urgency. Uh, Surin Naidu, thank you very much indeed. Uh, MoneyWeb's Deputy Editor. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. All right, I want to move now from logistics to defence, and around 85% of the South African Air Force's fleet is currently out of action, leaving the nation potentially vulnerable to security threats. So how did the South African Air Force reach this critical point? With us now is Guy Leach, editor of the SA Flyer and Flightcom magazines. Yeah, Jeremy. Well, the story obviously started way back when, when you could take it back to Economics 101 and the guns versus butter trade-off in terms of, you know, should we be funding the Defence Force? It was pretty much modelled on the old political transformation Air Force. And I think for a long time that was the idea. And, of course, it was further developed by the whole arms deal, which encouraged further you know, armament spending. But the reality is that for the past 20 years, the government hasn't had either the will or the wherewithal to fund an Air Force along the old model. So there was a brief bump up in terms of capability for the 2010 World Soccer World Cup, and from then on, it's been a steady mm. decline of underfunding. So we, we, and, and this isn't a new problem. We've seen that the the Gripens, obviously the most high profile of all the the, the jet aircraft in the Air Force's fleet, have been either in uh, grounded or in rotation for lack of maintenance and for lack of pilots and for lack of fuel for flying hours, and it goes across the whole board. South Africa has enormous obligations in terms of maritime reconnaissance and patrol for our not just our own offshore 
protection of um, marine exclusion zone, but for search and rescue. And we've had no capability for search and rescue for the last oh, 20 years. Um, if you recall, the search and rescue capability was um, rested in the hands of 70-year-old Dakotas with turboprop engine conversions. It's absolutely criminal how we've neglected our duties in that regard. So, Guy, given the operational responsibilities that we've got and the specific threats that South Africa might face and the current state of the Air Force, as you've just outlined, what type of operation do we need to adequately meet those challenges? The obvious answer to that question is simply we've got to cut our cloth to suit our budget. The budget is not capable of supporting the Air Force that the politicians would like to have or that indeed is a, we have as a legacy Air Force. Quite simply, the Air Force needs to be right-sized. The right size turns out to be less than the 75 aircraft, which is the somewhat arbitrary definition of what constitutes an air wing. So the bottom line, the, the argument I'm proposing, is that the actual Air Force cease being a proper Air Force, it becomes an air wing. It could even become a subsidiary of one of the other armed forces, but obviously fairly naturally, the army. But more importantly, it becomes an air wing with with about 50 aircraft, mostly centrally located. So you can literally run them from one place, centralized centralized maintenance, centralized um, pilots, you know, centralized all the operational requirements, which would enormously save costs. And and right-size it, and a lot of key other functions could be outsourced, including stuff that wasn't outsourced in the past, like pilot training. Obviously, an idea like that would be bedeviled by pride and politics, though. A hundred percent. This again goes to... In fact, it's the same dilemma that South African Airways faces. South African Airways shouldn't be flying to a whole lot of places that does fly, particularly in West Africa. Abidjan is a case in point. It's a flag-waving exercise. This is the same thing. We want a defense force. We're just not prepared to pay for it. Somewhere there's got to be a trade-off. Either they've got to properly fund the Air Force, and that would require expenditure on defense of over 1% of GDP. We're currently well below that. The number of about 0.8% comes to mind. And um, or we have to right-size the Air Force. It's one or the other. What type of aircraft do we actually need to meet the operational requirements that you've listed? And, for instance, do we need grip and fighter jets? I argue that we don't need grip and fighter jets. We have no immediate threats on our borders. We aren't using the Grippens for our regional defense responsibilities, which are voluntarily assumed. We're not deploying Grippens to, for instance, the DRC, where there is an active, or there was until recently, an active war. So they're air show aircraft, the same with the Hawks, the so-called lead-in flight trainers. We've got the whole large squadron to train fighter pilots, which we don't need. So the Grippens and the Hawks could really be uh, be dropped. As I said in, in, in the article that may have, that probably brought on the story, I said, in fact, the, the neighbors, Botswana, are looking to upgrade their extremely old F-5 jets and are keen to buy Grippens. Maybe what one does is one does an alliance with a couple of southern African states and maintains uh, some sort of uh, central collective to operate a, a handful of these aircraft should they really be needed for whatever reason. But as I've said, mm. South Africa faces no viable external threat at this stage. And if that such a threat was to emerge, I honestly believe there's a fair chance that we could form an alliance rather like NATO, uh, perhaps with a big brother partner from um, either the USA or perhaps China or even Russia. Am I reading this correctly that you're also suggesting we have either the wrong or an old helicopter fleet which adds to the problem yeah 
we we it's but that's both both of those statements are true. The helicopter fleet is wrong in that we don't need the light helicopters that are the Augusta Westland L109s. Those are, are complex civilian machines and we don't need them in the Air Force at all. We do need an Oryx capability, that's the medium lift capability, because that's how you do deploy troops into, into areas where they might suddenly be needed, like northern Mozambique or into the DRC, as has been the case. And again, that's been sorely neglected. At this stage, we have maybe two Oryxes out of our total fleet of maybe 18 that are actually operational. Again, because of underfunding, those need urgently to be got back into the air properly funded. The Air Force is now funding the um, C-130 Hercules refurbishments, but these Hercules are now um, 1960s, uh, 60-year-old aircraft as well. They should have been retired ages ago and replaced with C-130Js, but no, we're we're throwing another couple of billion rand, five billion rand Mm. comes to mind at them, being overhauled in England to, to try and update them a little bit further. We're making do with a real string and bone exercise keeping old aircraft in the air rather than properly funding a smaller fleet of newer aircraft. And then we, again, we've got this huge gap in terms of marine reconnaissance. So um, we've got to get two or three marine reconnaissance aircraft into the force or into the air wing to be able to look after Mm. our duties and responsibilities there. Kailich, I'm going to leave it there, editor of SA Flyer and Flightcom magazines. Thank you very much indeed for that uh, assessment. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Now, overnight, the Springboks have dismissed any suggestion that they've been distracted by off-field tension in the build-up to the final tomorrow night, notably the Bongi Mbonambi racial epithet row. But can it have an impact? And I wonder how our director of rugby, Rassi Erasmus, is thinking. Well, author David O'Sullivan, who wrote the best-selling book, Rassi, is in a good position to share some thinking in that respect. David, I assume that... Uh, all his cunning gamesmanship and psychology will be utilised and is being utilised to prepare the box ahead of the game tomorrow. Absolutely correct, Jeremy. And, you know, when I think back in 2019 uh, to the World Cup, and you remember there was a racial spat then after the quarterfinal against Japan where um, Makazola Mapimpi was seen to be uh, uh, shooed away from a group celebration of white players and it was immediately perceived as racist. And that's when we understood the power of the bomb squad and the fraternity in the bomb squad. And it was very innocently explained because it happened for innocent reasons. Um, Rassi had to contend with a racial problem then. And the way he handled it was by going to the players involved to ensure that they were not in any way damaged or scarred or felt any kind of uh, prejudice as a result of what had happened and shielded the players from any fallout that was happening back in South Africa. I've no doubt he will have employed exactly the same techniques, the same uh, modus operandi in dealing with this to ensure that the players, uh, as they have said, remain uh, undistracted by what has happened. He also will have prepared this team so comprehensively. Again, we can learn from 2019, where we, the Springboks played a warm-up game against Japan because Rassi anticipated we would face them at some stage in the competition. And we did in the quarterfinals, and the Springboks were ready for Japan. Fast forward to 2023, he anticipated we'd play the All Blacks at some stage in this tournament and organized a friendly at Twickenham where we put a record score past the All Blacks. And so going into tomorrow's game, 
there isn't there aren't any unexpected things and the motivation they would have got the confidence they would have got from having beaten the all blacks at twickenham in the warm-up game will carry them through very nicely into the final tomorrow and david it's a funny old thing fans and players alike uh almost seem to rise to the occasion when we have our back to the wall in one way or another. Well, correct. And I think that if anything happened, it was probably a galvanizing effect. If the players were in any way addressing this issue, I think it would have brought them together. Certainly, I, what I find uh, quite remarkable about Tom Curry's allegation against Bongi Mbonambi is that um, it's united all South Africans across the world, and most South Africans, I should say, across the racial divide on an issue of racism. Almost ironic that that would be the case. But Rassi and Jacques Ninaba are, in fact, that entire management team, I can't just put it down to one or two people, uh, obviously led by Rassi and Jacques Ninaba. They're very, very strong on what they call alignment. They are constantly talking about alignment. And by that, they mean... Uh, are, are we all on the same page? Do we all understand one another? And a lot of their training is not actually on a rugby field. It's behind closed doors in front of a whiteboard where they talk about things that they are feeling, um, things that might be bugging them, things they want to get off the chest, things they need to talk about. And if Bongi's story was something that was upsetting them, by I, I think undoubtedly they would have had a few alignment sessions to make sure that everybody was comfortable and then they could go forward. And to that point, David, uh, Kwaka Smith was talking about the team playing for each other and for South Africa rather than, and here's the important bit, seeking external respect. Yes, uh, and, and I, I totally understand that. So for Rassi, he his philosophy always is it's not about picking the best players. It's picking the right players. And so he looks at the mental capabilities, whether you are prepared to be a part of a band of brothers. But if, if, if you feel you're the prima donna, or as he calls it, vinchat, if you're not part of the team, if you're playing for yourself and not for anybody else, then you're out of the picture. So to be the right player, it means that you've got not only the physical uh, attributes, the skill set that's required, but you've also got the headspace that's important. And what's important for this team is that you play for the team. They will die for each other. You look at those strong bonds that have been established. They do play for each other. They play for their country. These things are very big in their, in their hearts. And they see the videos from back home. They know how the fans are reacting. And, they, and that motivates them going forward. But individuality, it's not part of the picture. So when people are saying, poor Mani Libok, he's losing out. Yeah, Bunny Lubbock's time is going to come. He probably has another two World Cups in him, and he won't be sitting with a thick lip saying this is unfair because he understands the value of, uh, of Andre Pollard playing in the wet rather than his preferred game in the dry. You won't find that these pl- players in any way are resentful that they're not part of, it, uh, are, are not part of the match day 23, but they are, are appreciative of the fact that they're part of the World Cup squad. They all get medals at the end of the day. Author of the best-selling book, uh, Russi, David O'Sullivan, thank you very much indeed. Now, no need to tell you where many South Africans will be tomorrow night at 9 o'clock, but be wary of blowing vast amounts of money in one day and in one go. That advice from Claire Classen, Consumer Financial Education Specialist at Momentum Metropolitan, who's with us now. So, Claire, what then are the common pitfalls? The big pitfalls, I mean, we all go to the shops and see people coming outside of the butchery and the bottle store with more than we should. So 
what we tend to do at this time of the year, actually, not just for a rugby match, is over-prepare ourselves and stock up. And we're talking about, as you say, you know, everything to put on the bride to uh, trolley loads of liquor and beer coming out of the bottle store. So, Claire, how can we enjoy the World Cup experience while still maintaining a degree of fiscal prudence? Well, I think it's essential, Jeremy, every time you go to the shops, whether it's for celebrating the rugby or preparing for the festive season, for example, you need to make a list. So the go-to is to budget and to plan your spending. Before you go to the shops to stock up, make a list of exactly what you need so that when you are in the shop, you're not tempted to take what you don't. That's essentially a simple solution and tip that I can give to anybody. Even with your kids, if you're taking them to the shop, for example, make sure that you tell them we're not going to go for anything but this product. But it's tough sometimes to resist that temptation when emotions are running high. And as uh, we have this conversation, you know, we're a day away from uh, potentially a World Cup victory. It's uh, easy to talk about making lists, more difficult, Claire, to actually stick to the rules. Would you agree with me? I would definitely agree with you. But what I do, right? I'll give you my personal example. I leave my debit card at home, but I draw the amount of cash that I've uh, budgeted for, and I don't go over that. So if I have 500 rand to spend on preparing for the braai, you know, the snacks and the drinks, I only have 500 rand. And, so and I know it's difficult. It's difficult, <laughs> but you, you're going to be a lot more focused, I guess, when you hit that supermarket, which uh, which is, I think, exactly what you're trying to recommend to us. But, Claire, it's not just uh, the Rugby World Cup. We're also coming to the end of the year, so people are going to start mm. thinking about festive spending, and uh, we don't need to reflect mm. on the cost of living crisis, which is affecting so many people right now. More broadly, mm. we are not a nation of savers and uh, it's something no. that we need to uh, that we need to focus on with a lot more alacrity i imagine absolutely jeremy and, and the thing is we we think that we need to have a good income to save or you need to be wealthy to save the truth of the matter is that no matter what you earn if you're not a good saver you're not a good saver essentially what we need to do is be mindful of every penny we're coming out of covid you, you report on it regularly. The petrol price is ridiculously high. The diesel price is high. I saw it the other day. It's more than a two liter of your favorite cool drink. You know what I mean? So you need to be mindful to say, this is what I need for the festive spend. Yes, we're going to get together for lunch. Let me have a bring and braai instead. So even for the rugby this, this weekend, if you're going to be the host Make the salads, prepare the coals, and let your guests come with what they drink and what they eat. Mm. You can apply that similarly to when you're having your uh, your lunch over Christmas. Do a potluck. The thing we've we've moved away from, Jeremy, and I, I don't know if you've seen it as well. In the old days, we used to sit around a long table and everybody used to bring their pot of food. And we'd enjoy a family time, right? And we'd have memories. But that's really gone away. Let's take advantage of those kind of situations and club together in any fashion. It's going to curb the spending. Black Friday is around the corner, right? It's November. Mm. Please take advantage of what you need. So if you do not need a huge flat screen TV and you need a microwave, for example, go into the shop and buy a microwave. Ignore the other specials. It's very difficult. But as I said, just maybe 
Make sure that you have a spending limit. If you're going to take your car to the shop, place a limit on the amount of money that you spend. Bring yourself into perspective to say, hey, it's Christmas, it's festive, it's the, the rugby match tomorrow. But in January, I have to make sure that my kids have their school fees paid, their uh, uniforms and their school shoes paid for. Once you have that perspective, you'll bring yourself in line. Claire Klassen, Consumer Financial Education Specialist at Momentum Metropolitan. Thank you so much. All right, uh, along with my sound engineer, Ed, we've made our shopping list for tomorrow. Let me share it with you. Uh, One Castle Light, we'll share that, Ed. A packet of small salt and vinegar chips, and we'll split a bar one. No, I don't think that's going to happen. Today's program sponsored by Peregrine Capital. Invest in 25 years of performance. Invest at peregrine.co.za today. Peregrine Capital is an authorized financial service provider. T's and C's apply. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.